And now we turn to God's Word from the book of Revelation. Our text today is Revelation 1, 9-20. That's on page 1913 of your Pew Bibles. As we did last week, we are asking for all of you to help. Right at the beginning, you will see words on the screens for the narrators, followed for the word, by the words for you, the congregation. So keep an eye on the screen right at the start, so you don't miss your cue. A portion of the revelation from Jesus Christ to his servant, John. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and to take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Bless, Bless us, Lord, Lord as, as we read and hear and take to heart, heart these words. words. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool. White. white. As white as snow. White. white. And his eyes were like blazing fire. Fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. Bronze. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Rushing, 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 rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. The sun. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and not. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thank you for the reading of God's Word this morning. Just a couple of notes on this text uh, before, we, before we get too far into things. First of all, John was on the island of Patmos. Don't think of Patmos like Gilligan's Island. There weren't a lot of palm trees. There wasn't a lot of life there. It was a rock. It was a prison, really. John is suffering in this place. This letter comes to the seven churches. There were more than seven churches, actually, in this area of the world in Asia Minor. There were actually these seven churches. These are real churches. We'll see more about them in the book of Revelation. But you have to ask, why these particular seven? Why was the number narrowed down to seven? And we think the reason is because while these were real churches in real places, this is also a representative of the church, the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And so the message to these churches is also a message for us today. So, sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, I'd like you to just pretend for a moment that you're at a Milwaukee Bucks basketball game or any NBA game or NHL game for that matter. And if you've ever been to one of those things, you know that the whole show begins with the introduction of the players, right? The introduction of the stars, and they make a whole big deal out of it. Well, imagine that if you could. You could take away or remove all the tackiness of that situation. All the tackiness of of an announcer who seems like he does WrestleMania and uh, monster truck rallies on the side. Take away the spotlights that come straight out of a prison camp film and take away the fake fireworks while you're at it. Because what all of those things are is they are tools that someone is trying to use to stir up within us some sort of awe, some sort of reverence, adoration, some sort of worship. Instead, imagine, in, imagine such a situation in which this kind of reverence, this kind of worship didn't need to be manufactured. Imagine instead a voice like a trumpet. A voice not attempting to fabricate worship within us, but a voice like a vacuum that actually pulls it out of us whether we want to give it or not. This was John's experience in Revelation chapter 1 as he was introduced to the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And I say the ascended Jesus on purpose. You see, the Gospels, when they speak about Jesus, they speak mostly of a suffering Jesus. They speak of the Jesus who was human, like we are. A Jesus who who chummed around with some, some rather dense fishermen, to tell the truth, but who also at times showed signs of divinity. That was the Gospels. Revelation begins with a picture of Jesus as he is today. A picture of Jesus in full dress uniform. The Jesus who walks among and rules 
His churches. He is Lord. This is the Jesus who is in fact not just Lord of His church, but He is Lord over all things, over all the rulers and the kings of the earth. This is the Jesus who is fully divine 24-7. This Jesus is God. And as students of the Bible, which we profess to be, we know that, don't we? We know that as we read through these descriptions. You see, when John turns to see this voice that was speaking to him, what he sees first is someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. That's a royal figure. That's a divine figure. The phrase son of man originates from the vision of Daniel. Listen a moment to how that name appears in that place. This is what Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Both Daniel and now John see a divine figure, a royal figure. This was the Son of Man that all of Israel had awaited, was looking forward to, was hoping would one day come and this is the title that Jesus actually took for himself while he was here on the earth among us. This ordinary rabbi claimed to be divine. In fact, in the words of Eugene Peterson, Jesus juxtaposed the most glorious title available to him with the most menial of lifestyles in the culture. He talked like a king and acted like a slave. He preached with high authority and lived like a vagabond. Jesus was systematic in this double affirmation. He was, in fact, Son of Man, given the glory and kingdom, given, given dominion and glory and kingdom, and he was, in fact, completely at home in the ordinary, the everyday, the common. He did not give an inch in either direction. He was very God and very man. And yet, here in Revelation 1, what do we see? We see very God. This is the image that the rest of this text begins to flush or flesh in for us. Okay? Look at the descriptions that we see here. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow. We could say a lot about that, but really that description also comes from the book of Daniel from chapter 7, where God himself wears clothing as white as snow and his hair is white like wool, like pure wool. This is a picture of God. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, Glowing in a furnace. 
Now those images also come from the book of Daniel, this time from chapter 10, where an angel or some other divine being is described as having eyes like flaming torches and arms and legs that gleam like burnished bronze. And, and just a comment here on those legs of, of bronze. You may also recall from the book of Daniel that Daniel had a dream once, a dream of an incredibly huge image, right? A mighty figure made of powerful metals, the head of gold, and it worked its way down. Everything was metal except for the feet of that image. The figure had feet of clay. And what Daniel saw there was a mighty kingdom in Daniel's day, but, but it was a kingdom that was vulnerable it had a vulnerable foundation that's what the feet of clay are all about it was it was built on shaky ground and really all the kingdoms of this world are like that aren't they although it's hard for us to see i mean the kingdoms that we see they they glimmer with with power they're daunting they look unassailable to us but the message in the book of Daniel is that all of those kingdoms, each and every one, are temporary. They're temporary. The kingdoms of this world are temporary. They're fleeting. The kingdom of Hollywood, the kingdom of academia, the kingdom of the free market, the kingdom of socialism, the kingdom of success, all of these kingdoms of the earth have feet of clay. They're vulnerable. They're temporary. They're temporary. But this one, this one that John sees, this one like a son of man, doesn't have feet of clay. He has feet of bronze. Now, bronze is, a, is an interesting material. Um, it's made up really of two different metals. It's made up of iron and copper. Iron is, is a great metal, right? We all know it's, it's strong, but iron rusts. Okay? It withers away. Copper, copper doesn't rust, but copper is very pliable. It's, it's soft. Combine those two, copper and iron, however, and you get bronze. And in bronze, you preserve the best qualities of each of those metals, the strength of iron and the endurance of copper. And so this image that Daniel sees is one that stands on an unshakable foundation of bronze, no feet of clay for the Son of Man. This is the kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. It will not end. Remember how the vision of, of Daniel ends. That, that, that huge statue that he sees, he also sees a rock that begins to grow and grow and it rolls toward that statue and it finally knocks the statue over and then the rock begins to grow into a huge mountain that stands forever and ever. The kingdom of our God with an everlasting king. This is the image that's brought to us in Revelation 1. I just want to comment on that a little further. You know, if there's anything that this COVID-19 situation has taught us, I think this is it, isn't it? That no kingdom lasts forever. 
No earthly kingdom lasts forever. I hear a lot of anger in people today. Both people outside and inside the church were angry. Why? Why is that? Well, I think it's because we've seen cracks in our kingdoms. We've seen that our kingdoms are vulnerable. You see, each and every one of us have little kingdoms over which we reign. Little realms that we control. We control where we live. We control our comfortable incomes. We control our routines, right? We see the grandchildren on Tuesdays. We see a movie on Fridays. We go to church on Sundays and see all of our friends there. We take a little vacation in the fall. We fly here, we fly there. We've got our kids' sports to teach them healthy values. We have college football on Saturdays. We have pro football on Sundays. We have all of our routines just the way we like them. And COVID has upset all of that, hasn't it? It's shown us that really we don't have any control. That our kingdoms are illusions. Our kingdoms are vulnerable. Our own kingdoms are fleeting. And should we really be angry when we discover that? I mean, isn't that what we pray for? Every time we pray, Thy kingdom come, Lord. Aren't we praying in that prayer that all of our temporary kingdoms might fall and make way for the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ? Did anyone ever say that the kingdom of Jesus would, would look like our own little kingdoms? Was that ever a promise that was made to you or to me in our baptisms? That's what Daniel's vision was about. A kingdom is coming whose king has feet of bronze. His kingdom will never end. It will outlast every other kingdom. The descriptions go on. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. That too is an image out of the Old Testament. It comes from Ezekiel 43, verse 2. And there, it's a description of the voice, the very voice of God Himself. And, and we could go on and on with this list. What we're seeing are descriptions of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, descriptions of God. Jesus is, is God. The one who stands before John is God himself. This is Jesus, but the veil has been pulled back and we see him in all of his glory. Now, as we read through these descriptions and as we go on in Revelation 1, I just want you to understand what's happening here, right? What John sees is, is all these descriptions of Jesus as they come from the Old Testament prophets. And one after the other, these descriptions begin to pile up and they crescendo toward this pinnacle of Jesus giving us 
his own self-description in verse 17. We have all the descriptions of the prophets applied to Jesus working toward his own self-description in verses 17 and 18. But before we get to that self-description, there are two very important things that take place. There's an action and there's a word. I just want to look at those briefly. First of all, the word. The word is this, don't be afraid. I think it was Richard Mao who, who told a story about Santa Claus coming to visit his kindergarten class when he was in school. And as little Rich was, was taking in this, this mountain of a man who stood before him, his, his bold red suit and his, you know, his huge black boots, his overly accentuated hairy face, Someone lifted little Rich up and plopped him right on this man's lap. And Rich was terrified. He was terrified. But the man in the red suit, he could feel Rich, Rich's little body trembling. And he immediately did this. He, he pulled down his fake beard and he said, Hey, Rich. Hey, Rich, it's me, Mr. Veenstra." Mr. Veenstra was an elder at Rich's church and a friend of the family, and Rich immediately breathed a, a sigh of relief. In Revelation 1, John has that same terrified, trembling reaction to this glorious Son of Man, and he falls on his face, paralyzed before him. And look here what Jesus does. He pulls his beard aside and he says, Hey, John, it's me. It's me, it's Jesus. The same Jesus you always knew. The Jesus who is for you, not against you. Don't be afraid. That's the word. There's also an action here, and that is a touch. A touch. When John sees this one like a son of man standing before him in all of his grandeur, John falls at his feet. And we could almost say that that's an expected response to something like this because the Old Testament is full of this kind of thing. When there's a revelation from God, the one who receives that revelation often falls on his face before the one who speaks that word of God or before the magnificent being that stands before him. But there's a difference here in Revelation 1 from all of those other places in the Old Testament. And the difference is this. John falls at his feet, and then there's this little line that's added, as though dead. As though dead. John falls as though dead at the feet of the one who was dead. And now is alive forever and ever. And what does that resurrected, living Jesus do? He places his right hand upon John as if to cause him to rise. 
You see, in his actions, Jesus is assuring John of the very thing that he is about to speak. Don't be afraid. Because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What Jesus is saying here is, my victory, John, was for you. My resurrection shall be your resurrection. Death and Hades, these things shall no longer have power over you. Don't be afraid. Rise. And in fact, that is the main message of this text. Jesus' self-revelation. I was dead. And I was raised. And I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has authority over all things. Right? Not just over the kings of the earth, but over all things, including all the powers and all the authorities, such as death and Hades themselves. So don't be afraid. That's the message here. Don't be afraid as the followers of Jesus Christ. You have nothing to fear. Now, that's the message. How do we apply it? Let's just think about this text for a moment. Here is Jesus in his full dress uniform as the glorious Son of Man, and he is telling us not to be afraid. Let's ask the question, why? Why shouldn't we be afraid, Jesus? Well, one, because Jesus is God himself. There is no other being more powerful. There is no other being that will outlast God himself. Two, why should we not be afraid? Because Jesus has conquered death. And in his conquering death, we have conquered death. Three, why shouldn't we be afraid? Because his victory is our victory. Death no longer has any leverage over us. But friends, that's the why question. And I think that's often where we stop. And we assume we know the rest. But I think the real question here needs to be when. When should we not be afraid? When? And the answer, I think, from the text is right now. Right here and now, we should not be afraid. Right in the midst of our island of Patmos lives, don't be afraid right now. You see, friends, the description of Jesus that we've been looking at isn't the first description that we find of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Remember what we heard earlier in the greeting this morning. It comes straight out of Revelation 1, verse 5. It introduces us to Jesus. Jesus Christ, three things about him. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now those are not just three names or titles or descriptions of Jesus. That's a story. That's Jesus' story. 
Jesus lived his life as a faithful witness to the Father and to his gospel. And this is what led to Jesus' death. Because of that, he was hung on a cross. He was crucified. He was condemned by the kingdoms of this world. Second, God raised up this faithful witness to be the firstborn from the dead. God would not allow the grave to hold him down. Third, God rewarded him for his faithful witness, for his faithfulness to the Father by making him the ruler over all the kings of the earth. God gave him an everlasting kingdom that would never fall, that could never be shaken. Jesus was given the right to sit on the very throne of God himself forever and ever and ever. It's a story. Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, exalted by God himself. That's the story of Jesus. And in that story is a message for you and for me, for us, for his church, for the lampstands that he walks among today. And that message is, be faithful to me all the way to death. We have a calling as Christians to be faithful to Jesus Christ all the way to death. Be faithful in your witness. Don't compromise with the kings and the kingdoms of this world. Be faithful all the way to death. Second, you can be faithful. You can be faithful. Why? Because even if you lose your life, God will raise you up. Death has lost its leverage. We have nothing to fear. We can be faithful. And third, when God does raise us up, you yourselves will reign with Christ in His everlasting kingdom forever and ever and ever. You see, friends, when, when we hear this message of comfort, this message of Jesus saying to us, don't be afraid, you and I have a habit of tucking it away in that file that sits there in the file cabinet in the wait until grandma dies department. Wait until grandma dies and then we will pull it out and we will comfort ourselves by saying, grandma's now in a better place. Friends, I'm not saying that there are not texts like that in Scripture and that Scripture doesn't proclaim that. But I don't think that's being faithful to this particular text. Because the context of Revelation and Revelation 1 in particular, actually the whole book, is that of Christians who are faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, Christians who are refusing to compromise their faith in any way, and they are being tortured, they're being put to death, they're being ostracized by their communities, by their business partners, they're losing their livelihoods. These are people who, suffering, who are suffering, and yet Jesus comes to them and he calls them to continue unwaveringly 
in their faith all the way to the end. All the way to the end. In other words, this is not a text to tuck away in the when grandma dies department. This is a text for remember how grandma lived department. Remember how grandma lived. She lived victoriously. Remember how grandma had no money, but she was the most generous person we knew. Remember how grandma was always inviting new people and people on the fringe over to dinner and family gatherings. Remember that? Remember how grandma spent more time with her Bible than she did with Facebook? Remember how grandma refused to leave her little house even when the color of the neighborhood began to change? Remember how she was the first one to greet her neighbors with cookies and and invite them to her house and make friends? Remember how grandma voted? Hold it. I don't have a clue how grandma voted. She never talked about political platforms. She talked about being obedient to her Savior and learning to fill out His robe of righteousness somehow, some way. Remember how Grandma wasn't impressed by appearances? How she didn't try to keep up with the Joneses and how she befriended the very people the Joneses ignored. Remember how grandma was slow to speak and and quick to listen? And yet it seemed like she taught us more about Jesus than anyone. Remember how grandma refused to compromise her faithfulness to Jesus? Friends, this text isn't about when grandma dies, don't be afraid. This text is about don't be afraid to live like Grandma lived. Because death has no power over you. Because the kingdoms of this world cannot last. And you have been freed. You have been freed to live for Christ. This world has nothing to use as leverage against you. You know, I was speaking to someone this week who has Parkinson's disease. And one of the symptoms of the later stages of Parkinson's, and I wasn't really aware of this, is hallucinations. Hallucinations are, are when you see things that aren't really there. And, and this person told me, he said, I, I see the cavalry outside my window. Every day they're there. Um, I see them in their full uniforms. I see their houses or their horses. They're very impressive, really, he said. And I know they're not there, but I see them as plain as day. Like I said, hallucinations are when you see things that aren't really there. Jesus wants us to see something that is really there but it's invisible to our eyes. It takes faith to see it. What is that? It's Jesus himself. The glorious Son of Man, the first 
and the last, the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has freed us to live for him. Resolutely, single-mindedly, without compromise, Pray that we will always see Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we bow before you like we do not bow before you enough. We fail to see you in all of your grandeur, all of your power and strength and glory. And therefore, we fail to realize that all of that is for us. Increase our faith, O oh God, that we may recognize that our Savior is the living one, the ascended Lord, the resurrected one, whom death has no power over. And we can live in that same power of the resurrection. And so, Lord, make us faithful to you in all things. May we recognize that, that we want to be a part of your kingdom and that all slaves and servants in your kingdom will one day live as kings and queens, reigning with you in a kingdom that shall not fall. Lord Jesus, give us faith on a daily basis. We know when those calls to compromise will come. We can feel them in our hearts and in our bones. That's the work of your Spirit pointing them out to us. Lord, when those calls come to compromise, give us the strength, the strength in your resurrection to be faithful. This is our prayer in your name. Amen.